everyone. My name is Lawrence Lever. I'm the chairman and founder of CityWire. And welcome to this new episode of From Our CityWire Correspondent. So with me today is my esteemed colleague and fellow director, Richard Lander. Hello. And then from the States is Alex Rosenberg, who's head Hello. of our RIA oh. channel. And uh, Patrick Cairns, who is a recent recruit to CityWire's head of CityWire South Africa. So uh, don't worry about interrupting my little preamble, guys. This is a, it's only a podcast. Um, you know, we're not the BBC. Uh, we do our best. So uh, anyway, let's find out what's going on in South Africa and the States. And um, Patrick, I hear there's a, their version of the lockdown involves no alcohol. Can you just explain that for us a little bit? Well, it's been five weeks now, just about, Lawrence, with uh, no South Africans being able to legally buy or transport alcohol. Uh, the government decided that given that alcohol-related injuries make up a rather large proportion of what ends up in uh, emergency rooms in hospitals in South Africa, they thought it was uh, worthwhile to stop the sale of alcohol to make sure that those beds would be available for anybody infected with coronavirus. And so we haven't been able to get hold of uh, our usual supplies for quite a while. I'm down to my last four beers. Yeah. Fortunately, my whiskey cabinet is fairly well stocked, but there are a lot of people who I know are running dry. And we've got, uh, although a relaxation of our restrictions coming on Friday, uh, lifting of the alcohol ban is not one of the things that's going to happen. Oh, wow. I mean, Alex, you would hate that. You're a bit of a wine buff, I hear. I, I am. I mean, I, I would have, I'm stocked up enough that I would be continuing to, to have a few bottles, but you know, you drink things five and 10 years too young. It would really be, be tragic for me. I, I guess I'm, I'm curious, you know, Al Capone famously and, and these other mobsters came to the fore in the United States and, and took this as a huge opportunity when the U S tried this for a little bit longer than, than you guys are in South Africa. Is there like a black market in alcohol? Can you, can you call a guy and get him to bring over a, a bottle of beer or what's the situation? Well, there, there are some people who are taking advantage of the situation. There's no doubt about that. What's interesting is that the alcohol ban has actually been alongside a tobacco ban. So you haven't been able to buy cigarettes okay. either. Wow. Um, that, that is being lifted on Friday. But uh, the sale of illicit cigarettes was already a problem in South Africa. And it really boomed over the last few weeks. So What was the thing behind the banning cigarettes? Well, the idea there was that uh, smoking uh, would be a heightened risk factor. But obviously, stopping smoking for three weeks isn't going to really yeah. reduce the risk. Um, so I'm not sure that that one was that well thought through. Uh, are people making their own moonshine alcohol? They there? are indeed. Pineapple beer is apparently the one that's really <laughs> been <laughs> taking off. Um, it's, it's not as big as I believe in Sri Lanka because they have also similarly had a, an alcohol ban there and their kitchen brewing has apparently taken off immensely. Uh, not, not so much in South Africa, but there are, there are a number of people who have their own little microbreweries going in their, in their back gardens. I guess we better talk about the boring world of finance. <laughs> so, um, uh, Patrick, tell us what's going on in South Africa. What are those kind of dominant things in South Africa finance at the moment? Well, the interesting things from the point of view of wealth managers and advisors is that they're seeing a real dislocation in the client's expectations, depending on who they're talking to. So those who are pre-retirement 
uh, are far more concerned about their day-to-day household budgets than they are about what's happened in the markets. Uh, whereas those who are post-retirement uh, a little bit more concerned about what's happening in the markets, but also seem to be taking things a lot better than you might expect. Um, and a lot of that, I think, has to do with the way that uh, portfolios in South Africa have generally been constructed. We've always been very aware of the need for diversification. Um, and what happened in terms of a South African investor experience is that although all markets sold off quite quickly initially, um, the bounce in international markets was more pronounced than in South Africa. And that happened at the same time that the RAND weakened quite significantly. So South African investors who were invested uh, significantly offshore uh, have actually recovered quite strongly since the initial sell-off, which which has really cushioned portfolios. Uh, Another part of that is that although they're not extensively used, there are a number of advisors who make use of structured products. I know that not all structured products are equal, equal, certainly. There are some that are uh, very opaque and very expensive, but there there are some very good structured products available on the market. Uh, And what they do for investors is that, first of all, they, they cushion any kind of fall in asset prices because they generally have protections built into them, but they also are always structured to mature at a certain date, which is generally three, three and a half, five years down the line, which means that short-term market movements are not necessarily that concerning to people who are invested in these kinds of products because they know they only need to worry about what's happening at the maturity date. So, so banks like Investec create them and they sell them through uh, uh, IFAs, advisory businesses. Is that how it works? Generally, uh, although a lot of them are actually also available, uh, tradable on the stock exchange. Um, oh, right. Interesting. Yeah, mostly they sold through IFAs. Um, who There aren't a lot of them, but there, there are some IFAs who are sort of taken in and given a lot of background on how these things work so that they understand and appreciate where's the best place to use them and how they fit into portfolios. They, would, they wouldn't be a huge part of, of anybody's portfolio mm. simply because you've got, you've got the credit risk uh, attached to them. Counterparty um, risk, you've got to make sure that exactly. whoever's yeah. providing them. So, so Patrick, uh, how much does the average South African investor have uh, in offshore allocations? Well, that, that depends, Richard. That's a very good question. We, we have... In built into our mutual fund legislation, uh, we have restrictions on how much investors can take offshore within a fund. Um, so South African domiciled funds can only take 35% of their holdings offshore, but that doesn't mean that you can't, as a South African investor, invest directly offshore or invest in feeder funds, which then invest offshore. Um, but anybody who's invested in a standard retirement portfolio would have that 35% limit, but generally they would be at that, at that kind of upper end of the limit. Um, so you, you would expect that people in or near retirement would have somewhere between 30 and 50% of their, of their portfolios invested offshore. Cool. Let's go over to the States and see what's happening over there. Alex, what, what are you uh, working on or what do you find interesting at the moment? Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been a fascinating few weeks for markets overall. I mean, the the big question that all my uh, all my friends have started asking me is is you know 
what is going on with with it was one of the fastest uh, market drops we've ever seen, and it's been one of the fastest recoveries we've yeah, ever seen. Amazing, it's, it's, it's really fascinating, and and people are trying to, you know, just as people were trying to piece together what was happening as the market was crashing, uh, now people are trying to piece together what was and and the optimists are saying, okay, you know, the market is generally a bit ahead of the economy, but of course, uh, we know that the worst for the economy is ahead of us. We just saw. A GDP number of down 4.8% for the first quarter and whatever happens in the second quarter is going to make that look, look like, you know, the good times that we, that we long for. Um, yeah. so- Do you think it's a slightly artificial market? Because basically the governments and central banks around the world have propped up the market and people are feeling, well, nothing awful can happen. There can't be come total dislocations of liquidity and things like that because the central banks will all, always come to the rescue and that has provided a flaw for the market or, a, or an impetus for the market. Yeah, I think, I think it's actually amazing how successful the central banks have been at um, convincing people that capitalism was, was not going to end. I mean, that's really what you saw, in my opinion, in, in, the, in 2008, 2009, is people mm. thought this is it, you know, we're just going to go back to trading rocks and, 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 you know, these companies aren't worth anything. And that's, that's what you saw baked in these prices. People questioned the, the validity of, of the whole experiment of, of America, frankly. And the central, you know, the economy is still in trouble. Tons of people are out of work, but the central bank has been able to convince people that we're going to keep this thing going. And, and the government has stepped in much faster than normal, as, as has the Fed, mm. to convince people that, that you know, it's going to be a tough few quarters, but, the, but America and capitalism are going to make it, which, you know, might sound silly, but, but it's, I, I don't know necessarily that, you know, it, it's hard to, to figure out what, price, what stocks are pricing in because, of course, they are perpetual, you know, so they could be looking out next year, they could be looking at five years, 10 years in the future, but it's, not existential is what the Fed has been yeah. able to convince people. And, and Given I, the depth of the recession that we're expecting, is there a risk that investors grow too complacent given the stimulus and they think, well, that everything's okay now when clearly it isn't? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's interesting. We have seen more diversion, uh, dispersion among companies so that certain, you know, healthcare sector is the largest percentage of the S&P 500 that it's ever been. Um, or, or at least in recent history, at, at 13 or so percent. It, you know, we are seeing people say, people are going to come out of this. Some companies are actually going to come out of the stronger and other companies are going to come out weaker. But yeah, I mean, there's certainly a risk where in America, people are people put money from their paychecks automatically every week. Uh, 401ks, the popular retirement thing became opt out rather than opt in. So most people are just continuing to invest in the market. I don't know if it's complacency or, or just... Uh, you know, ignorance in, in a perhaps in a positive sense that you don't know what's going on. But but yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot uh, to be figured out in terms of where the sent- sentiment actually is. I mean, what would it take to kick the market down? I mean, is it an airline going bust? Is it is it a bank running out of money? I mean, one sort of expects at the back of one's mind that there might be a, a, a real black swan event like that coming along. I, I personally think that if, it's if the government allows a major company to go bankrupt, like a yeah. company in the S&P 500 to go bankrupt, then then people will get worried. Right now, it doesn't look like the government's going to allow that to happen, and the recession might not do that anyway. But you know, you see some of these results from from corporate from from Boeing that have come out, and and if the government says, "All right, you're on your own," then then yeah, I mean, we we could fall any number of of amount. 
I think that's the thing. Look, it'll take, it can take one bit of bad news to really spook the market. But I think the difference between now and 2008 is 2008, they scrambled together to get the rescues. Here, they seem to be much more prepared. I mean, in a way, 2008 was a bit of a dress rehearsal for this, just in terms of coordinated central bank responses and getting things through Congress as quickly as possible. So, uh, but anyway, I think we should move on a little bit to um, less the macroeconomic situation, but more what's going on in your more narrow world of RIA land. Uh, uh, Alex looks after the uh, RIA channel for CityWire, which is a very vibrant channel, a very large channel as well. So, uh, what 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 are what are the RIA saying to you? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. There's there's a lot of discussion about how these independent RAs are doing in this moment. Um, and there, there are two sides of it that because we don't really know yet. But one side says that anything, anything that bad that happens to people's money, anything that makes people notice what they're doing with their money is going to be good for independent RIAs just because they are so small compared to the major banks. I mean, in, the independent RIA space manages about $2.2 trillion. Merrill Lynch alone manages $1.2 trillion. So, you know, these firms are really tiny in the broader scheme of things. And, and that's why you're seeing money come over and, and people come over and, and more money being managed on the independent side. So one, one side says, you know, people are, people are going to say, you know, I haven't been happy with my advisor for years. This is the reason I'm leaving. But we actually talked to, you know, our reporter, Jake Martin, talked to someone named Mark Matson from Matson Money, which is about a $9 billion REA. And he was saying advisors come out of this looking pretty bad because at the end of the day, they say they do whatever their clients tell them to. And if their clients told them to sell at the bottom, that's what they did. And so it's going to force people to say, you know, robo advisors actually did pretty well for this. Do I really need a human managing my money um, at all? Or can I just use a robo? So, you know, it, it, the jury's still out on, on how uh, independence will come out of this crisis looking. Alex, presumably you have like we do in the US, in the UK, where some advisors will have complete discretion over the client's portfolios and they make the decisions. So in a way, the, the asset test is how those discretionary investment advisors performed. Do you have those in the States? I see. It's my understanding that the, that fund, the funds may be discretionary and the funds that these uh, advisors use. But, but if, if you're an advisor and your client tells you to sell, you basically have, and this is even in the, in the code of ethics of, of the CFP yeah. organization, that kind of thing. You basically have two options. You can try to convince them otherwise, that's not going to work. You can sell, or you can say, well, Mr. Smith has been very nice managing your money these past two decades, uh, but I think we're going to have to try something else. So, so at the end of the day, I mean, they're, they're really, yeah. it's like it's a lawyer, the client you're just your client's right arm. Yeah. yeah, it's what the client says, guys. You mentioned robo-advisors there, uh, Alex. And everyone said, you know, robo-advice is great as long as the market goes up. But when it goes down, people will want someone to talk to. Now, the market has gone down in, in spades. Any idea how that's playing out? I mean, it, it's interesting because <laughs> robo-advisors have performed, you know, just as badly or well as everyone else. Like, the, the, the parts of robo-advisors that they said, you know, these are going to weather all conditions, uh, that, that didn't work out so well. But, but they... It wasn't. It wasn't a huge crash for these robos either. So I, it's interesting. Like the jury is still out on pe whether people actually want to talk to someone. Arguably, 
you're better off, uh, you know, I, I, on an earlier edition of this podcast, you talked about the 10% letters. Arguably, you're better off not knowing, you know, what your firm's doing. You're better off not getting a call from your advisor and, and just sticking with the markets, as, at yeah. least if you're, you're long-term oriented. Um, so yeah, I, the jury is very much still out, Richard. <laughs>